This is the third of three podcasts exploring the use of sound in cinema. All too often we are told that film is a visual medium. It is not, and has not been since Alan Crossland's The Jazz Singer was released in 1927. Since then, sound has been half the picture. However, the way we receive sound, even in real life, it very often goes unnoticed. So much so that if you mention great sound design, thoughts automatically go to any number of Andrei Tarkovsky's films. Solaris, Mirror or Stalker, perhaps Gus Van Sant's Elephant, or even Shane Carruth's Upstream Colour, where one of the characters actually collects sound. But I wish to examine less obvious, perhaps more indirect choices. This final podcast explores how music can add to the story's emotional and thematic textures. There are two types of music in film, one an original score specifically commissioned, and the other pre-existing. When it comes to using pre-existing music, there are two challenges. The filmmaker is hoping that audiences will know the music sufficiently to recognise it, but two, not be so intimate with it as to resist this particular engagement. In other words, filmmakers hope for enough wriggle room within which they can realign the listener's relationship with the tune. Because really, what the filmmaker is hoping to do is to so redefine it that it overrides the original intention and meaning of the music. Take, for instance, any of these works. These cinematic appropriations are so strong, for most of the public it is impossible to hear those notes and not think of spaceships, wheat fields and napalm. With Strauss, Sanson and Wagner, we are talking about some of the greatest composers in the history of European music. And with those options, why would you commission a composer? The commissioned composer is creating the music to complement already existing images, while Strauss and the others were using the music to conjure emotions in the hearts of the listeners. Can you listen to these passages and not think of Raging Bull The Elephant Man The Shawshank Redemption. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Death in Venice. But the one I wish to examine is the Silence of the Lambs. Very quickly, Jonathan Demme establishes Hannibal Lecter as a sociopathic aesthete, a vicious snob who will resort to murder if his sensibilities are offended. In this sequence, Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, 
has been temporarily moved to the Memphis Town Hall. Lecter begins listening to the Goldberg Variations, written by his preferred composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. What is interesting here is that Lecter is using the music to soothe himself so he can regurgitate part of the pen he stole from Dr. Chilton. All so he can pick the lock on the handcuffs the officers will use to keep him under control while they deliver to him the second meal he ordered. The Silence of the Lambs was released in 1991 and in light of the way classical music had so often been used as a counterpoint and so to ironic effect, the temptation would have been to play Lecter's assault on the officers with Bach's music playing uninterrupted in the background. But what Demi did instead was bring in composer Howard Shore to drown out Bach's music and replace it with the violent tones of a new composition. Which means the music we hear is the music produced by Lecter's murderous rage. And once he has finished his attacks, Lecter is back to his courteous self and the Goldberg variations return. But classical music is one thing, pop music is quite another. If only because such music permeates the public airwaves on such a regular basis, we are far more familiar with the works of the Beatles, Bob Marley and Beyonce, than we are with Bruckner, Berlioz or Bizet. But that brings with it the risk of taking something that many people may consider to be their very own special song, and again, like classical music, challenge the audience to reconsider their relationship with it. Or you can have cover versions. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. I run for the bus, dear. While riding, I think of us, dear. I say a little prayer for you. The neighbors might think. Say, what's in this train? But either way, familiarity with those tunes encourages us to sing along. The one I wish to praise is in Lost in Translation. When it comes to lifting an already existing piece of music, it is all a matter of contextualising. And what Sophie Coppola does is take two Americans and parachute them into Japan, where curiously, pop music is the only way they can communicate with the Tokyo Whites as well as with each other. But what is really going on here is the search for identity. Early in the film, Charlotte and Bob, played by Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray, experience moments of personal stress. And so the music becomes not just their bond, but the means by which they express who they are. Bob is undergoing a midlife and career crisis. 
getting paid $2 million to appear in a Japanese whiskey commercial when, in his own words, he could be back home doing theatre. And in a desperate lunge at a rapidly vanishing vitality, he dons a t-shirt more suitable for a 20-year-old attending a music festival. Which is why he sings... As I walk through this wicked world Searching for light in the darkness of insanity I ask myself, is all I hope lost? Is there only pain and hatred and misery? As for Charlotte, she finds herself being treated as little more than an appendage to her absent photographer husband, with whom she has tagged along for his assignment to do portraits of a Japanese rock band. Charlotte is quickly losing her sense of self and, fearing she no longer attracts her husband, she dons a pink wig and, feebly shifting her attention to Bob, it is to him she sings. But of course, Coppola is far too gifted a filmmaker than to have the pair go any further than singing to one another. The songs, although allowing them to communicate, also serve as an act behind which they continue to hide. And then there is the commission score. Although born in Mauritania, Abdurrahmani Sasako studied film in Moscow before going to Mali to direct several outstanding features, the most striking of which is Timbuktu. Made in 2014, it relates the deceptively simple story of Kadami and Satima and their daughter Toya, whose lives are put at risk when an extreme Islamic militia seizes control of the region. The new order imposes all manner of bewildering restrictions and demands upon the local population. Music is banned, as is the playing of football, and women are permitted from leaving the house without wearing gloves. The absurdity of this last edict is exposed when a fishmonger complains that wearing gloves impedes her from operating her business. Later on, another woman is subjected to 40 lashes for singing, and then 40 more for sitting in the same room with a man who is not her husband. Yet, as she endures her punishment, she defies her tormentors by singing again. Clearly then, Sasako's film is a document against tyranny, the injustices it imposes and the resistance with which they are met. Life is difficult, but sustainable. So it is clear that social harmony has been severely disrupted by the arrival of the jihadists. They are regarded as an ad hoc and motley crew, unsure of who they are, what they are to do, and what the Quran expects of them. By contrast, the locals are able to operate free of such uncertainty. And in the face of oppression, they find ways of continuing on. In a moment worthy of surrealist Louis Bunuel, a group of local youths gather on a stretch of empty land. 
There are no markings on the ground, but they have constructed two sets of goalposts replete with meshes for nets, all of which suggests a game of football is about to be played. However, there are no penalty boxes, no corner flags, no centre circle or halfway line. Which is fairly normal when I think about it. I don't know how often it happened to me as a child that I played in the same imaginary space. But at least we had a football. The young men in Timbuktu don't, yet nevertheless they double down on their imaginary lines and agree that a football is present. And then they begin to play. Passes are assumed to be real. Tackles are made, but no fouls are committed. The ball is moved down the pitch and a goal is scored. There are no appeals for offside. Why? Because, however fanciful, the defiance is more important. The way I have described it may sound absurd, but Sasako sets the whole thing to music by Tunisian composer Aminu Buhafa. And this is where the sound delivers its expressive force. Without the football, it looks as though the young men are dancing. But they cannot hear music, so what are they doing? Here, without a word, Sasako unfurls his protest against the jihadists. Having already won two awards at the Cannes Film Festival, before going on to win three Césars from the French Film Academy, Timbuktu was nominated for the BAFTA and Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. A modern masterpiece you may have missed, it will bring you many rewards.